Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Club Management. Melissa, it's June. It is June. And I jumped in again without introducing myself, so I'm Kyle Jennings, <laughs> and I'm joined by my colleague, Melissa Lowe. How is it June already? I, I don't know. How are we halfway through the year? I'm not exactly positive how that happened, but... That means that we're just about to start summer, and who knows, by the time that this has come out, it may well be past the first day of summer. Who knows? Yes, absolutely. And so we're excited this edition to have some great <laughs> interviews um, and to really talk about what are the elements of a winning team. I think for any club that is successful, it is directly related to having a team working behind the scenes. Absolutely. Of those teams, of yeah. Teams. Yeah, the cohesiveness of a team I think really lends itself to the overall success of the club, but then to the member experience. When you know that your your GM is supported by a cast of individuals who are on the same page and on board with everything that um, you know, the board wants to see happen and and that they communicate well with each other, they have a healthy amount of respect for each other. Um, I think that all in all that really lends itself to a pleasant, pleasant experience for the member, but also a pleasant experience for the individuals that are working at the club. I think, I mean, that goes for even employment teams not at clubs. I would say that that's true anywhere. I know that our our team is... <laughs> cohesive and you know we're learning every day on how to even be better and more winning <laughs> absolutely and I, I think that you know once you've worked in a effective team you can't um, you can't devalue really what that means and, right uh, to your culture and to your effectiveness and I think you know this is a, it's a really interesting so our, our first interview is with Joe Basso who is the is an MCM who wrote his monograph specifically on this topic. And then we had the opportunity to talk with John Embry with the U.S. Professional Tennis Association to talk about the changes that are coming to their accreditation and certification, which will ultimately benefit clubs. And, and we know that the tennis uh, portion of a club is an important part of that team. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Beverage and golf and really all of the amenities. So we're very excited to. Yeah, the, you. those are great. And then we get to follow things up with our idea fair interview, and um, we're going to sit down and talk with some the team from Myers Park Country Club, um, and their idea came out of the leadership philosophies and development category, and they're looking at a business unit review, which I think Melissa chose very well because again, it fits right in nicely with this idea of winning teams and a successful cohesive unit. So this is going to be a great episode and we're really looking forward to sharing with you. Joe Basso, MCM CCE, is the general manager, chief operating officer of Birmingham Country Club in Birmingham, Michigan, a member of CMA since 1987. He was recently inducted into the inaugural 2019 class of CMA Fellows, an honorary recognition program distinguishing those living CMA members who epitomize the leadership, integrity, involvement, and contributions of club management professionals. 
we are excited to have Joe as our first fellow on the podcast. Joe is currently the chairman of the MCM Academic Council. He attained his Master Club Manager MCM designation in 2002 with the publication of the MCM monograph, Building Bridges, Working with the Golf Management Team. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Tell us what first inspired you to pick this topic for your monograph. Well, it was, uh, it was an interesting conversation that I had with my golf professional at the time. Um, he it's on a Tuesday morning, actually. We were standing in the kitchen having coffee, and it was the third or fourth time he brought the subject up where he would play golf on uh, Mondays if the clubs were closed with all of his golf professional friends, and, and uh, I still hear him ringing in my ear. He's like, Pally, I just don't understand it. All these guys do is complain about their general managers. And it, it was a bit puzzling to the two of us because, you know, we had a great professional relationship and a personal relationship outside the club. So I started to stick my toe in the water with conversations with other managers and, and superintendents and golf professionals around the, the, uh, the area uh, to get their sense of it. And remember, this is back in the probably the late 90s when, when this all started to take shape. And at that time, there was, I'll use the term disharmony, there was a bit of disharmony among a lot of the uh, industry organizations and associations, and you know, and, and my personal view, a lot of it was just territorial uh, aspects. Um, and so, it, the, the the topic really kind of intrigued me uh, because I really, you know, I, to me, it was foreign how you couldn't have a, a positive working relationship with these individuals. And so, it represented an opportunity for me to learn something uh, about it and, and try to get the bottom of why it was there was so much pushback to it. So let's talk about the elements of a winning team or in the club industry. Can you take us through those? Sure. Um, I, I can tell you when I first started to do the, the research for this, there really wasn't a lot of industry-specific literature uh, as it related to just you know, team dynamics. Uh, most of what I was able to find when I researched the monograph was uh, academic. Uh, but I, I can tell you that I've seen a lot has been written since then, uh, since the monograph was published. And it's not coincidentally that, that these same five elements keep showing up in, in some form or variation. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to take you through them in no particular order of importance. Um, but, but the first one I'd like to talk about is, is communication. Um, and it's, you know, certainly over the last two decades, it's communication has changed a lot. It's a, a much more, much faster-paced uh, club management environment these days, and open lines of communication are almost an absolute necessity uh, for getting things done around the club and to set yourself up for success. Uh, you know, we just just here at Birmingham, we employ uh, you know three or four forms of real-time uh, information vehicles, and, and it really becomes essential that. Every member of the management team uh, is on the same page, whether that's whether we're responding internally to the membership or ex externally to uh, you know vendors or, or pushback that comes from outside. Um, and I do want to digress uh, for just a, a minute to say that even though this this uh, paper was uh, developed around the specific relationship between the superintendent the general manager or the club executive and the golf professional, 
uh, you know, these, these elements apply to, to, to just about every relationship and certainly within uh, the management team itself. Uh, and that communication piece, uh, it's just I just would close that, that first element out by just underlying the importance, again, of, of everybody giving, coming forward with the same message and, and just avoiding the, the fake news. Uh, I don't remember who said it. One of my other golf professors used to repeat it that in the absence of information, people will listen to anybody that steps up to the mic. Um, and that's what we try to avoid here and trying to get out in front of everything. Uh, the second element uh, I would offer up is, is trust. Uh, you know, I think there's a certain expectation of trust uh, among members of, of winning teams in, the, in any case. Um, and I think it's about, you know, walking the talk. Uh, you know, if you say you're going to do something, you need to follow through and do that. Uh, if, if, you, if you say that this is the type of manager you are, then, then you need to exhibit that and, uh, in, in your interactions with your staff and interactions with your managers, and, um, and that goes for really anyone in a leadership position. And I think the underlying component of that is some consistent expectations of, of, your be, of, of each individual's behavior, of your behavior as, as maybe the team leader, uh, but the expectation of, of anyone's reaction. You know, I, my superintendent and I have been together, this is our second club, and we can pretty consistently anticipate each other's reactions to, to uh, you know, situations that occur around the club, and I think that's an important at every level of the team. Um, I can tell you that one of the things that the research did point out is the converse of that, that any time um, any of the survey respondents talked about uh, bad relationships, the lack of trust among the team members was, was really kind of at the, at the core of, of the dysfunction. Uh, the third element is, is mutual respect and understanding for what each member of the team brings to the table. Uh, I can tell you that, that, that here the bulk of our uh, problem solving and decision making, at least uh, on a global level across the club, happens every Thursday morning around the conference room table when all the senior managers are together. And you'll be amazed at uh, where the solution to a food and beverage problem might come from. Sometimes it'll come from our golf professional or our, our director of rackets. Uh, it's that whole, you know, too close to the forest or too close to the trees to see the forest thing. And, you know, once they're removed from that, someone removed from that can, can see it in a different perspective. Uh, and we accept that, uh, that, you know, the team kind of accepts everyone else's input. It's a, we practice a, a concept, I guess, called whole club thinking where, you know, yes, golf is a big thing here, but so is rackets and so is food and beverage. And without any one of those departments, uh, it's not really Birmingham Country Club, it's something else. And so we've kind of learned to appreciate the synergy that comes from the relationship that we all have, uh, that each department has with the other. And that kind of brings us to uh, element number four, which is mutual support. And it's, it's really supporting each department in their quest for success and their quest for excellence. And, you know, when the uh, facilities manager has an issue and needs more hands on deck, he's extremely comfortable getting on the radio and, and calling our uh, uh, golf course superintendent for, for assistance. Uh, it, it's just it's paramount to recognize the need for alignment with everyone and that everyone's all kind of on the same page. Uh, and that same page brings us to the, the fifth element, which is 
sharing a common vision. Uh, and, and I would submit that whether you're the executive leader in the club or you're the leader in your department, you've got uh, to develop a vision for your staff to buy into. And in this case, you know, the management team buys into that, and, and quite honestly, the whole club buys into that same vision, whether you're a manager around the conference table or, or a line employee or a, or a club member. Um, and I think once you create that and you get the, the buy-in of that, that, that's really what drives a lot of these, these other elements. It's interesting. Um, so many of these elements that you've talked about seem operational on one hand but cultural on the other. Um, it, it's like it's as though those two things can't be separated. You want a successful operation at the club, but it, you can't have that without a positive um, company culture or work environment. Yeah, that's a, that's a great observation. Uh, somebody asked me not too long ago what I thought my legacy at, at Birmingham would be, and, and uh, while I certainly hope I have a longer way to go than, than today, um, <laughs> I, I think one of the things that's just been instrumental to our success over the, the last 12 years has been really a culture change. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember having a conversation with Mike Liam Hayes once, and, and uh, we were talking about club culture, and he said, you know, you you really have to, it really takes you like seven years to, to get a handle on a club's culture, and, and my comment to him was, Mike, if it takes you that long, you're going to be looking for a job because the club's going to be looking for for more more from you uh, sooner than seven years. And we had a very healthy, very very friendly debate over that. But um, it's I, I would tell you that it's taken us just about probably those seven years that Mike alluded to of, of working steadfastly and vigilantly on, on developing that vision and, and just making these five elements really just incorporating into our culture, whether that's and it's a it's a culture shared, uh, you know, club wide. It's not the management culture. It's not the staff culture. It's not the member culture. It is indeed the club culture, and uh, it's certainly I think been a been a uh, large contributor to our success over the last several years. Absolutely, and I think um, you kind of address this, but the fact that culture is something that you constantly have to work on, but it's also something that it, I believe is consistently evolving over time. Um, you know, you talked about it a little bit with your first element of communication. The styles of communication over the last 20 years have changed drastically, but that can still be an important element in your club culture. You just have to be nimble and agile enough and adapt to those changes over time to make sure that that's still successful for your team. You're, you're absolutely right, and that, that agility uh, works both ways. Mm -hmm. when whether you've got a crisis or, or some, some information piece that you've got to get out now to everybody, uh, that agility works in your favor. You can d deliver a message, you know, within a couple of minutes that would take you, you know, uh, three days of snail mail to get out, <laughs> you know, 20 years ago. Um, but you also have to be very careful yep. uh, because that same agility, if, if, if that message is not the message that you want to get out, or you're a little flippant or casual in, in even just everyday, you know, conversation, you, the wrong message can get out and then, and then, you know, you're fighting that battle. Absolutely. Well, following up from, from that, um, what advice then would you have for anyone who is um, 
looking at pursuing their MCM designation? I mean, it sounds like your process was very thoughtful um, and it took a lot of time, but what, what would you say to somebody who's thinking about this as their next step? I would encourage them to find a subject that um, they can wrap their their head and their heart and the rest of their emotions around because it's it's the better part of a year process from the time you decide this is what I'm going to write on until you get to a, to a finished product. Uh, and that's a, a year out of your life that you're also uh, donating some of it to, to your, not donating, it's not the right word, but you're, <laughs> you're spending time with your family, you're spending mm-hmm. time with your club, uh, so there's other, other uh, demands on your time. Um, but I would also encourage anyone considering that pursuit to contemplate something that, um, while it's, it's uh, an important subject to them or, or it's a subject of interest to them, it's not something that maybe they have a command of. Right. Um, this was an incredible learning process for me. Um, it, it made The process itself made me a better manager, but certainly the end result of content uh, made me a better manager on so many levels. And, and that's really the essence of what that, um, uh, that MCM journey and certainly the, the monograph is supposed to be as, you're, as, a, as a long-time uh, industry professional, you're supposed to develop something that you can give back to not only, that not only makes you better as, a, as an individual manager, but as a, a resource document for, for your colleagues in the industry. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, I think the great thing about your topic is it's still so relevant, um, and it still resonates today. Well, it's just amazing to me how, how again, I think I might have said this earlier, how little there was out there uh, beforehand. Now, you know, you can, you know, with all the golf publications out there, you, I mean, you, you see it, you know, almost, you know, pick a time period, but it's, it's a regular part of what's being discussed in, in, in the industry, and it's... I'm happy to see it. Well, great. I, I think that wraps us up. Melissa, do you have any other questions? I don't. Thank you so much for joining us, Joe. We really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you both very much. John Embry is the CEO of the United States Professional Tennis Association. John has held a wide variety of influential tennis industry roles for more than 30 years. They include serving as president of Prince Sports, the Americas, president of Ball de Match, LLC, and 17 years at Wilson Sporting Goods Company, where he held a variety of positions, including vice president, general manager of the Racket Sports Division for six and a half years. Prior to joining the USPTA in October of 2012, he launched a tennis consulting practice to assist endemic brands, associations, and new corporate entities in maximizing their impact in the tennis marketplace. Earlier this year, the United States Tennis Association, USTA, announced that the United States Professional Tennis Association has received full accreditation under the USTA's new accreditation program for organizations and institutions that certify U.S. tennis teaching professionals, making the association the only USTA accredited organization. We know that your club's tennis professional is key to a winning team. John is here to share more on this exciting news. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. We're really excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Melissa. Appreciate you uh, extending the opportunity to me. That's great. 
So tell us about the changes. Tell us about the accreditation and, and what that means. Yeah, this is a, a real watershed moment for the tennis industry and for us here at the USPTA. Um, as a little background, I will just say that um, our requirements for becoming a tennis teaching professional and a certified tennis teaching professional have been pretty limited. Um, in fact, for 20 years, there was no pre-education or no education requirement before becoming certified. All you had to do was take a test. And that really was, is inadequate, especially when you compare it to, you know, the golf professionals with PGA or food and beverage people that are, that are cooks. I mean, the time, time that they have to apprentice and the education they have to have is, was far more extravagant than, than what we as, as the tennis industry had supported. And so in 2013, um, we came together with the governing body, the USTA and PTR, which is a rival organization. We decided that we needed to raise the standards, and so we established a criteria, a minimum criteria of six hours of online education which is dedicated to really understanding how to work with young kids uh, under the age of 10, called Coach Food Tennis. And once you pass that particular um, uh, exercise in six hours of education, then you could go ahead and have the certification exam. But in the grand scheme of things, and in the world of, of tennis, uh, the developed nations around the world, the U.S. is probably dead last in terms of education prior to certification. Australia, Canada, UK, France, Belgium, they're requiring at least a minimum of, of 400 hours of education before they get certified. And so with our six hours of education before certification, it pales in comparison and it just doesn't do us justice. And, and the fact of the matter is that over the last 20, 25 years, tennis hasn't grown. It's been relatively flat. Um, so if we're really going to go ahead and improve the participation in the game of tennis, we've got to do more to elevate the standards of our professionals. And so this paradigm shift is going to begin January 1st of 2021. Uh, any new professional that comes into uh, the tennis teaching uh, landscape and, and wants to be a part of our association, uh, they're going to be required to have 1,500 hours of, uh, of learning before they can become certified. Now, that might scare some people when they say 1,500 hours from six hours, but it really is almost a year's worth of apprenticeship. So if you become an assistant pro somewhere at a club and you are going to be there for a year, you're going to learn um, how to go ahead and run a program. You're going to do uh, a variety of tasks and your director of tennis, your boss, is going to help you go through the process. So you're going to have about 1,200 hours of experiential learning and that takes about a year's time. And then as well, you're going to have to have 300 hours of online education that's being developed by us in conjunction with the governing body. So that's the 1,500 hours of experiential learning that, that is going to be required starting in 2021. So that's a major change in how we're going to uh, elevate the education and the professionalism of the people coming into the industry. And I think that plays well with CMA managers because CMA is all about education. And I think they also appreciate the education that golf professionals have to go through with the PGA. Um, and so I, I think it, 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 is, it is the right thing for the industry. I think this is a, a fantastic uh, achievement for us to be able to get agreement by the, with the governing body to go ahead and raise the standards as we are. And uh, so we're in the process now of the next 18 months, kind of getting ready for January 1st of 2021 uh, to be able to, to implement all the different changes that are going to be required for pros coming in. Now, this does not uh, consider those pros that are already in our association are already teaching. They're going to get grandfathered in, and, and uh, we are going to raise the standard. We are going to raise the continuing education requirement that we have over a three-year basis from what it is now, which is only 12 hours to six credits, 
but it is an improvement for those existing members. We're going to raise their standards and we're going to raise, ask them to do more continued education. But clearly, it's for the people coming in the industry. They're going to be better trained um, so that uh, they can deliver tennis in a much more professional and better way than they have in the past. So, John, tell us how these changes are ultimately going to benefit clubs and club members. So we think that by delivering tennis in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a better fashion, it's going to keep more players playing tennis, and it's going to keep people and attract new people in the game. Um, clearly, one of the things that we're doing as a part of this, this new change is, as of January 1st of 2021, the USTA and the governing body is going to require its member organization clubs that have four or more courts, which is obviously many, many CMA, CMA facilities, um, to go ahead and hire our professionals, uh, and uh, that's a big deal. It's going to help us influence the job market and get our pros um, with those clubs that have four or more courts. But in turn, we are going to do some things to help those club organizations, those member organizations that um, are going to go ahead and comply. Um, one of the things that there's a Net Generation website that helps encourage parents of kids uh, who are interested in learning about tennis to go to the Net Generation website and find out where they can go get programs. And because member or clubs are going to be hiring professionals from uh, the accredited organization, which is us, um, they're going to be listed at the top of the Net Generation um, uh, coach search website. So their club will be identified um, in, that, in that fashion. Uh, we're also going to do a variety of co-branded advertising with the governing body on ESPN, on the Tennis Channel, in, in print as well as in social media, um, to get pros, get clubs to be aware of how these new standards are going to impact their club and what the new pros are going to have to do um, to become certified. Uh, one of them is safe play training, and this is a really important element for, for clubs because, um, as you all know, with the USOC, uh, and all the things that have happened with uh, USA Gymnastics and wrestling and swimming, and et cetera, we need to create an environment that's safe for kids. And I think every club out there uh, wants, uh, wants to do that. So our pros are going to have to be safe play compliant with a background check and background screen. And so there's going to be a, a, an insurance or a, a reassurance that the pros that are going to be hired from the credit organization are going to have to be uh, safe play trained, safe play compliant, and background checks, and that should, uh, that should resonate well with a lot of the clubs that are CMA members. Um, we're going to offer some reduced fees for education for uh, our pros to go to our conferences and to our division conventions. Uh, there's going to be an online, uh, an, access, uh, an array of online education um, that pros are going to be able to get, which can make them better in their jobs. Um, I think consumers are going to have a better experience when, they, when they're working with pros of the credit organization. And um, we're also going to offer grant, the governing body is going to offer grant assistance to clubs who um, are hiring pros from the credit organization. And that grant assistance comes in the form of blended lines or helping with renovation of the courts. Um, that's going to be part of the relationship that's going to be developed between the governing body and member organizations. So, there are other benefits that are going to come to clubs. There is a wide range of them, but I think it's going to make the clubs uh, feel really good about working with us and hiring pros from the credit organization. And, and I'll make this statement from a CMA standpoint. I don't think there's a CMA club that would ever hire a golf professional that wasn't PGA certified. We want to have that same sort of uh, relationship and respect that 
any pro that is hired for tennis at a CMA club that they be from the accredited organization, which is the USPTA. So I'll stop there and and uh, take it take it to the next question. Absolutely, and I would I would I, I would echo your sentiment. The certification certainly first and and foremost um, important for our members, and I definitely think that they'll see that um, throughout their management team. So one of the things that we're talking about on our podcast is really the elements of a winning team. Can you share how the tennis professional contributes to that winning team culture uh, within the club management team? Yeah, thanks, Melissa. That's an interesting question because for a lot of years and for, for, for at many clubs, tennis was sort of a stepchild uh, within the club organization. Uh, well, the, the response for the managers and, and the boards would say, well, that's just the tennis program. They go off and they're doing their own thing and we don't really worry about them or bother with them. And that's that changing. That, that, that dynamic is changing. Um, tennis is becoming that much more integral to a club because with, with golf struggling in a lot of respects, um, tennis and other amenities that clubs offer um, are, are going to be more important to the club members. And uh, we all know that uh, the, the responsibility of the club is to make sure that club members have a great satisfactory experience, that they come back to the club on uh, more and more frequently. And tennis can certainly enhance that. So I view the director of tennis and the tennis staff as, as a tremendous asset to the club from a customer service standpoint, um, from a membership services standpoint. We've, we've got to make sure that our tennis pros and our tennis staff is helping sell the club's membership and bringing in new people into the club and making sure that the member experience is satisfactory and actually exceeds their expectations. Um, we want the tennis pro to be like a department manager, the director of tennis to serve as, as that department head and be responsible for training their staff and training the front desk and understand how important customer service is, not only delivering great lessons and great programming for their members, but just delivering a positive customer experience. So tennis should not be looked at as sort of an afterthought. Uh, it's, it's an integral part of the organization, and the more tennis is... Uh, the more the, the tennis staff is, is given that form to go ahead and participate in club activities and be responsible for helping with club uh, functions, um, it's going to benefit the club long term, in my opinion. So much exciting stuff going on for you all. Um, and certainly, you know, you have a, a good path ahead of you over the next 18 months. What else would you like our CMA members to know about the process? Melissa, thank you. We just, letting them know, I mean, the, the communication is going to be critical. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. We've got to make sure that we reinforce this message over and over and over again, whether it be at chapter meetings, whether it be at, uh, at world conferences, whether it be at whatever. We've got to, we've got to do the best job we can educating um, your your managers and your members about what this new accreditation and what this new certification pathway is going to mean. The other thing I would say is that um, we have to, we, we need a new pipeline of tennis professionals. We're aging out as an, as an association, um, and unfortunately, uh, we don't have as many young people coming into our teaching profession as we would like. Certainly, the PGA has their professional golf management schools. There are 19 of them, I think, around the country. And there's this incredible pipeline of young professionals coming into to the PGA, and we haven't had that, and we don't have that, but we're starting it now with the help of the governing body. We're going to create these new PTM programs. We have 
only two right now, or up until last year we only had two. Now we have 12, and we hope to have 20 by the end of 2020, where we are going to have a pipeline of, of young professionals coming into the industry because I think that's going to be important for clubs as well. We have to have a pipeline of people that are going to be attracted to come into our industry that want to aspire to be a tennis teaching professional, that recognize that this can be a career path for them. And we certainly know that CMAA does a wonderful job attracting students to come into their, to their profession, to come into their association uh, through their hospitality schools, et cetera. And we need to do the same thing on the tennis side. So. Uh, we just want, I would love the club managers to understand that this is an important initiative for us, uh, that we want to try to get these young kids coming into our profession to take the places of those of us that are going to be retiring in the next five to ten years. We have to have quality and we have to have uh, more professional um, uh, kids and, and trained uh, professionals coming into our association so that they can go ahead and, and uh, be members of the CMA clubs and, and really help drive their membership and, and offer a better program than they've ever had in the past. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, John. We really appreciate you joining us today, and we look forward to talking with you again on this topic. Thank, thanks, Melissa. Thanks, Kyle, very much. Have a great day. Well, we're very excited for our Idea Fair interview today to have Paul Mavenzi, who's the Assistant General Manager of Myers Park Country Club in Charlotte, North Carolina. This idea really popped in terms of our theme for this edition, um, really to talk about those leadership philosophies and development, and this really this concept of the business unit review, which I think works really well into this teamwork concept that we're talking about this month. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So tell us about where the idea came from. So it was actually a board directive between our general manager, Mr. Beto, and our board. What we found out is that our operation is much larger and much more complex than our board actually had an actual understanding of. And so they asked us to figure out a way to really convey the message and make just a really clear statement to the board as to how complex we really are. Um, so we came together as individual business units. Uh, the first one that we did was fitness. We felt like fitness may be a good starting point. It was a little bit easier to be able to dive into and uh, be a guinea pig course, essentially. Um, what came out of it was that we found out that we are big. We are complex, and there's a lot more to it than... Uh, we ever let on because it's just our day-to-day -day. this is our operation this is what we know we don't know anything more we don't know that the membership isn't as aware um, as into the intricacies of the operation so it was great to be able to get in front of the board and really just lay it out there great so when when you go in to do the business unit review with the board um, how much time does that usually add or, or time investment is that in your board meeting? So it's an additional 30 minutes. We, uh, the food and beverage unit, um, I guess proud to say that we went over our time limit by a couple of minutes. <laughs> we figured we might. Um, but they didn't cut us off, which we appreciated. We went on 37 minutes, and then we opened the floor up to a little bit of a Q&A at the end. Um, what, what came out at the end was that the board said that it was idle, that it was 
really great to see and really great to understand that while food and beverage is one unit as a whole, the front of the, the front of the house and the back of the house um, operate as two individual units that come together to create a good the experience of the membership. Uh, what they didn't realize was how big the operation was, a $6 million operation. They knew that, but they didn't know that the back of the house had 80 employees and the front of the house had 70 employees and the hours of operation and how many venues we actually operated and how much work and planning really went into it. At the end of it, which I thought was really cool on their part, is that they asked us to put together a little bit of a wish list. If we could have just a blank check to do with what we wanted, when it was all said and done, what would we do that could enhance our experience here at the club as employees, but also enhance the experience for the membership as a whole? And we created a little bit of a wish list at the end that we really created supporters amongst the board that said, still to this day, and six months later after the beverage went, um, hey, we love that idea. We still want to do it. Do you still think it's a good idea? Because we are on board and we want it to happen. Uh, which to be able to get that type of support um, from the board is really meaningful, meant a lot to us. Were there any challenges to implementing the idea? Did you have any reticence from any of your managers or from board members about the addition of time or the, the investment of time? No, the board was on the board was on board. They loved it. They they embraced it. They were excited about it. Uh, we had a couple of meetings leading up to it that we did some practice runs and uh, made sure that we were really dialed in and making sure that we were making the best use of our time. Uh, I think the most difficult part of it all was fitting the entire operation into 30 minutes because we love what we do and we're passionate about it. We wouldn't do it if we weren't, but there's just so much more to it than what we can fit into that time frame. Uh, I'm glad that they put the time limit on it because we could go forever. <laughs> Six months later, we could still be in there probably. Um, but that was the same for golf and agronomy and tennis. And those guys got in there, and they were just so amped up and so passionate about it that it's tough to fit it into that time frame. Well, it sounds like your department heads were also excited then about putting together these reports and having the opportunity to speak to the board and, and give them that little bit of education, even if it is in a short time period, um, but to share a little bit more in depth about what their department is doing. Oh, absolutely. It, it was embraced by all departments. I think that it was really an opportunity to get there in front of the board and tell them this is this is what we love. This is some areas of opportunity that we have uh, to be able to make the department better for the member experience, to be able to make it more efficient for our operation. Um, and at the end of the day, if we could do something that might change the operation for the better, this is what it would be. And to be able to give the department heads, to be able to give the department that type of audience uh, to be able to just get up there and speak passionately and speak from the heart, uh, it was huge. It was, it was a big deal for us. And 
typically when we go into those meetings, the committee meetings or the board meetings, we're stuck to an agenda and we're we're there in front of the firing squad just answering for the day-to-day -day operational questions. This was really an in-depth dive into who we are, what we do, why we do it, and how we've gotten to the point that we have within the department. So I don't think that there was a single department or a single department head that looked at this and said, ah, this, this just doesn't seem like it's going to be worth our time. Um, and if they did, I think they came out of it and said, 100% would love to do it again. That's really awesome. Um, okay, I guess then the next question is really, were there any sort of unexpected outcomes of this project or maybe any unintended consequences? Um, I think the big unexpected outcome was creating those raving fans from the board. <laughs> we went in there and went, you know, really just shot for the moon for some of these ideas. And when we explained it and answered the Q&A and explained why we wanted to, at the end they said, why haven't we done it yet? Like, <laughs> this meeting and go get it done. Like, go ahead and tear that wall down and figure out where to build it. Let's get it done. That's awesome. And, uh, it was great to be able, like I said, that they're excited about it. They're amped up. They're passionate. They're ready to do it. And uh, in the club world, we move a little bit slower when it comes time to spending additional money. Mm -hmm. But being able to get that support at the board level, it's just nice. That's awesome. That's really cool. Uh, like I said, if anybody went in hesitant about it, they came out very positive and uh, it was a positive experience. Good. Well, it sounds like your board has been super supportive and very receptive to to what you all have presented to them. So, I mean, if that's your unexpected outcome, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, you know, we go into it, and the assumption is that the board knows the operation. They know what we get into. Maybe they don't know the behind-the-scenes and the inner workings, but at a very high level, they know what we're doing. Uh, to be able to go in there and just lay it all out there and really dive into the nuts and bolts of it. It's eye-opening for them. It's eye-opening for us because we're able to really fill them in on just the intricacies of the operation. And then you come out on the other side and they say, wow, uh, thank you. It's, that's a big deal for us. For sure. For sure. Well, I think that wraps us up for questions. Melissa, do you have any other follow-ups? I don't. Thank you so much for sharing. I think the, the communication um, of this is, is fabulous, and it's a great idea and definitely applicable to any club. Mm-hmm, for sure. Well, good. Thank you both. Okay, time for some announcements. Um, we now have the 2019 conference recordings available on CMAA University. So the recordings for many of the sessions at the 2019 World Conference on Club Management are now available on CMAA University for any members who purchased the recordings or purchased a full conference or education-only registration. Uh, you can earn up to five additional CMI credits 
by taking these courses online. However, they have to be courses that you did not attend at World Conference. So you can't double dip. Um, if you haven't accessed CMA University in the past six months, or maybe you forgot your password, or you have some questions, you can reach out to us at headquarters by emailing cmaauniversity at cmaa.org. So we have two upcoming deadlines at the end of June, on June 30th, um, for our leadership and also our fellows program. Are you interested in serving on CMA's National Board of Directors? It's a volunteer group of leaders charged with directing the future of the association on behalf of club management professionals. CMAA has openings on its board and has issued its official call for nominations this May for those interested in serving. Please check out the eligibility requirements so that you can chart your path toward leadership. Those interested must submit their required materials by June 30th. You can contact Kim Pasquale on our staff uh, for more information or questions or visit cma.org. Everything is right there on the homepage to connect you to that to those materials. Absolutely. And as Melissa mentioned, uh, one of our other deadlines coming up at the end of this month is for the next class of CMAA fellows. Um, we in introduced our inaugural class of fellows at World Conference in Nashville this year, and we're really excited and ready to welcome more. Um, so now is the time that you can nominate a peer that this individual must be a professional status member to become a CMAA fellow. Uh, as well, you can find the applications and materials online, and they are due to national headquarters by the end of June. So that's June 30th. It's coming up very quickly. If you have any questions or you need some more information that you can't find online, you know, you're, feel free to reach out to Jason Koenigsfeld or Kim Pasquale here at HQ, um, and they will set you straight. Absolutely. We're also excited to announce that the registration is now open for the Leadership and Legislative Conference. Woohoo! <laughs> so what does the future of CMA look like? This is your opportunity to share your perspective and collaborate with fellow CMA members on charting the course for our next strategic plan. So we'll be in Charlotte, North Carolina, September 11th through the 13th, and we hope that you will join us. You can get more information now at cma.org backslash LLC. Registration is open, and we do encourage you to register early. One point that I would like to make about LLC, is it true, Melissa, that each chapter does get one free registration for someone to it attend? Is, you are correct. Every CMA chapter gets one free registration to be used um, by a CMA professional status member within their chapter. So we encourage you to send a member of your board of directors uh, to be your official delegate. Absolutely, and we really want to have as many chapters represented as possible at LLC because it is um, an opportunity for us all to come together and because we are working on crafting the strategic plan for the next five years of the association, it's really important that we have as wide a representation as possible from our members across the country. So even if you're in a small chapter and you're not sure about funding, just remember that there is that opportunity for one free registration for a professional status member to attend LLC with us in Charlotte. Absolutely. And all right, last announcement and our sort of advertorial here. Uh, today's, today's episode is brought to you by the Club Resource Center. 
Now, we've talked about the Club Resource Center before, but you know we don't want you guys making any mistakes in training and development. And do you know what that number one mistake is? Is it hiring a company that's to come once a year and train your employees? Maybe. I think it might be, because that's killing your budget, and it's not allowing you to keep a streamlined and consistent training and development program. And it certainly isn't able to, to reach all of those seasonal employees. Right. So... What do we do about that? Well, we want to make sure that you have top-notch service for your members, and we want to make sure that you're providing a consistent, streamlined, and correct training and development program for your staff. CMA's Club Resource Center is your answer. Make training and development a priority at your club by asking for a demo now, and you can visit clubresourcecenter.org today to find that information and to contact Alexa Lavendis at CMA HQ to walk you through what CRC looks like. Well, thank you so much to everybody for joining us for another edition of Let's Talk Club Management. Wraps us up for this month. I can't believe it. We're done with June. And we're looking forward to the summer, and we hopefully will have some fun interviews coming forth in July or August, some summer fun things. And we, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking outside right now, and it doesn't feel very summery. It's currently gray and rainy, but apparently that's a thing in June in San Diego. Um, but I'm looking forward to more sunny days and hopefully being able to be outside and spending time with family. What about you, Melissa? I can't wait. I'm glad to have more sunshine, and it is beautiful here in Alexandria. Wonderful. Um, so it's, it was already 80 degrees this morning. Oh, so I don't miss that. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Uh, so I'm Melissa Lowe. You're Kyle Jennings. Yep, and uh, send us your Let's feedback. Make sure to uh, rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And check us out on SoundCloud or on the blog at, on CMA.org. And until then, uh, we'll talk to you next. We'll month. talk to you next month. Bye. Thank you.